0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Being in touch with the land, rivers and oceans keeps us mob deadly and healthy. Did you know that a 600ml bottle of regular soft drink contains around 16 teaspoons of sugar? You wouldn't eat all of that sugar, would you? Nah. So why do we drink it? Keep a jug of water in the fridge at home or take a bottle to work or school. Make the swap and choose water and stay healthy and strong for you and your family. For more information, check out livelighter.com.au.
0: Hello, this is Archie Roach, and you're listening to Good Music on
2: 855 AM on 3CR.
3: Relationship breakdowns can be distressing and have serious consequences.
4: Get lost! And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity
5: Breakfast.
0: A left response to the major developments in capitalism.
3: What they
5: trade in is not wheat.
0: Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course the website
5: solidaritybreakfast.org.au
4: Solidarity Forever
5: Good morning folks. This is Annie and And me, Kim. Yeah, that's right, and uh, that inopportune uh, finishing off of get lost. We don't want you to get lost. We want you to stay around for Solidarity Breakfast. We've got uh, lots of things to talk about. We're going to take up the issue of the uh, reclaim uh, races, uh, run the races out, right out of town, uh, which uh, uh, Dennis was just talking about, the big rallies around uh, the country uh, next uh, tomorrow, Sunday, and uh, we're going to t- be talking to Debbie Brennan, one of the organisers, about the rally tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be uh, following on with the three uh, CR's uh, special uh, interviews around climate change, leading up to the Paris uh, conference, November the twenty ninth, uh, with uh, Professor Associate Professor Peter Christoph about uh, our uh, Australia's. Um,
3: So-called emission reductions, direct action. I can't think of any other euphemisms.
5: That's exactly right. So we'll find out more about that and all the confusing uh, data that they like to throw at us so that we don't really understand why uh, they can't actually deal with uh, this issue on a structural level. And, of course, uh, we're going to have Kevin and... uh, Noah. Noah is back. For all of those uh, people who are in love with Noah, he's come back to talk to us about uh, Paris and uh, all other things uh, to do with uh, neoliberal incitement of terrorism. <laughs> mm. Really. <laughs> anyway, on the line, we've got uh, Debbie Brennan. So we'll have a chat about tomorrow's uh, rally. G'day, Debbie.
3: Good morning morning, Debbie. How are you going? Thanks for joining I'm us. I'm fine, thank you. Oh, good. Uh, there's been lots of updates with the rally that's happening tomorrow that's now happening in Melton. Uh, do you think that you would be able to tell us a bit about why the location has been changed?
2: Well, um, when the location was originally at Parliament House and campaign against racism and fascism, immediately called a counter-rally and people were coming on board, it was becoming very clear that once again our numbers would be far, far overpowering their numbers as they have consistently since we've taken them on last April. So Reclaim Australia just suddenly shifted away from the central part of Melbourne out to Melton, and they latched on to um a a reason for going out there and the apparent reason is um, what they say is a battle over the um location of an an islamic school so they've made some they've fabricated pretty much conflict there to um to as an excuse to go out to Melton but um we can only guess that they're choosing Melton because they feel that they can, that might be a recruiting ground for them, but we'll be showing them again that it's not.
3: Exactly. Um. How has the events in Paris emboldened the UPF? Well, as
2: in places all around the world, um, us being a part of it, of course, is that Reclaim Australia and the neo-Nazis, like um, the United Patriots Front and so on, have used that, that terrible um, violence in Paris as, a, again, an excuse for their anti-Muslim hysteria. And, um, of course, equating ISIS with all Muslims, therefore um, hyping up the the, the whole um, thing about Muslims being a danger to us here um, which of course is just total it, it's not only absurd of course it's extremely dangerous um, uh, propaganda so that's what they've been doing and the thing is that it's not only the far right and the neo-nazis it's, it's our own governments that are doing the same thing and so that's exactly how they've been using Paris to fuel their, their Islamic, Islamophobic um, dividing here and around the world. Um, of course, what we need to keep in mind is the fact that um, in that terrible tragedy... Muslims were killed and injured, as well as non-Muslims. In fact, Muslims are as much a target of ISIS as anyone else. And so we're, we're countering, of course, that propaganda, because that's, um, that's completely dangerous disinformation as a way to whip up that division
5: let 's unpack that uh, and bring it back to the Melton um, rally tomorrow uh, by our government focusing on uh, and our media focusing on the uh, ripple effect of an effect like uh, an event like uh, paris uh, the bombing in paris uh, it, all the media was uh, trying to come up with uh, angles that related Australian security uh, to that event over the last few days just as you're saying, but this means, just like the UPA and other people who are uh, connected to the Reclaim Australia group, this means that they divert their eyes from reality in the room, which is the uh, lack of jobs is because of government policy, the uh, casualisation of employment, insecurity of uh, home, uh, people, home uh, their lives, the... uh, lack of futures for their children, that sort of thing, feeds into this kind of uh, disaffected group that call, are calling for Reclaim Australia, Round a Flag, racism, when in actual fact there are actually core issues within our society. Would you say that's true?
2: Oh, absolutely. And and that's exactly what this...
5: Hello? Oh, we seem to have lost uh, the line. Well... Uh, Come back in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tail. And we're back again. G'day, Debbie. How are you?
2: I'm fine, thank you.
5: Yeah, I don't know what it, what that was, but that was a clean break. But getting back to our questions, we're talking to Debbie Brennan. We're talking about the uh, anti-fascist rally that's going to be held in Melton tomorrow. It starts at 10? Uh, 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock. Okay, and where is it at?
3: Um, it's at the Melton uh, Town Hall, I believe. That's right, isn't it, Debbie?
2: It's actually the Melton um, city, Council, city Council, and it's, um, that's 232 High Street in Melton.
5: Good Oh, So uh, we've already discussed the fact that uh, the uh, march has been moved from uh, the city centre out to Melton, and I'm broaching the issue of it, uh, the uh, Reclaim Australia people believing that uh, they will have a, um, a fresh recruitment ground in a place like Melton, because there may be people who have uh, a greater sense of uh, instability, economic instability, uh, and and, uh, that uh, this is feeding into a sense that uh, we can join a group around a racist concern, but actually it's about our sense of uh, instability.
3: I think as well, it's interesting in Melton, because there has been a very small group of, you'd say, Indigenous racists who are against the building of um, the Islamic school. Uh, But this is by no means a popular or mainstream view at all in Melton. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of the locals actually end up joining our side, but that'll be something interesting to report on tomorrow. Um, What are your thoughts on it, Debbie?
2: Yes, I think that's a good point because um, this is pointing to one of the very, the big reasons why we always have to counter the, um, the likes of Reclaim Australia or the United Patriots Front whenever they, they rally because we cannot allow them a platform for their very dangerous ideas because those platforms, they're using those platforms, of course, to recruit. And so our being there is. Denying that platform, but also our being there is to be among the very people, the very community that they are trying to recruit from. And I think, as you say, um, that the, it's a battle of ideas as much as anything else. And so it's it's very very important for the majority of us in the in the community who are going to be there as as unionists, as women, as LGBTIQ people, as First Nations people. In other words, the the actual targets of the far right and neo-Nazis. For us to be there and to be countering those ideas and to be bringing in the very community that um, the far right and the neo-Nazis are wanting to draw in to their side.
3: I I want to ask as well about this. These things have very real impacts in the here and now. There's been a couple of attacks on Muslim people. Um, One that I'm thinking of is the Muslim woman on the Gold Coast who was um, sexually assaulted Mm. um, and racially vilified. Um, Do you think that it's people like Reclaim and the UPF and... Um, well, actually, probably more our government who are to blame for this.
2: Oh, absolutely! Because what they're doing, of course, is that they're they're fueling this this phobia um, against Muslim people, and so they are setting up Muslims as being the ready targets for people um, who want who want to act out basically their, their blaming and so yes I think we have to definitely point the finger at the far right the neo-Nazis and our own governments that are fueling that, that hatred
5: Recently Tim on that same thing, recently Tim Wilson who I consider to be the ERTSAT uh, Human Rights Commissioner in Australia said that uh, he, suppo- uh, he uh, didn't necessarily agree with anything Reclaim Australia said but he g- thought that they had a right a freedom of speech right to express themselves What uh, counter that argument for me Debbie
2: yes we, we hear that a lot don't we and of course we're um, we all believe very very strongly in free speech but Violence is not free speech. They are practicing, the far right and the neo-Nazis are practicing violence. And their speech is very dangerous, divisive, but I really underline the word dangerous, violent speech. And so we need to express our freedom of speech to counter that. So... Again, this goes back to the importance and the need for us to be there every time to not only counter their hate speech, but to drown
3: it out. I think that's a really important point, because when people talk about freedom of speech in the abstract, you actually have to talk about whose freedom of speech? Are you talking about the freedom of speech of the working class or of the state and a lot of what the fascists are calling for is the so-called agents of diversity to be silenced. And the only people who can do that is the state. So basically what they're calling for is repression of working class freedom of speech. And you have to look at how these things play out in material terms, not just in the abstract, I think.
2: Well, that, that, that's absolutely right. And what's part of what you just said is that what is fascism all about? And this is what we're really facing um, what is it about? It is the 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 ultimate um, smashing by the forces of the state who are using this thuggery, because we're really looking at the, the stormtroopers, so to speak. Um, we're, they're the ones we're facing off right now, but they're actually the... Um, If they can be, they will be the paramilitary of a state that needs to crush right now because of the global economic crisis, needs to crush working class resistance. So what the ultimate effect is, unless we stop it before this grows, what the ultimate effect would be, as we saw last century, is that um, they're out to actually smash not only the working-class organisations, but especially the union movement, because that's where the working-class is able to organise in a very strategic place, which is production and in our communities.
3: The other recent news that I wanted to pick up on, and it relates to what you were saying about their violence and thuggery, um, is that there was a man who has been... Well, it seems that he's an admin on Reclaim, um, who the police have actually raided, um, and they found uh, numerous weapons and so on. And it occurs to me that if he had been a Muslim man, Mm. he would have been treated completely differently to the way he was treated.
2: Oh, very much so. Very much. Um, And the fact that he was found with tasers, for example, and... um, that's a bit worrying, isn't
5: it, considering they're only supposed to be in the hands of the police?
2: A- absolutely. And, and the ingredients for, you know, explosives and so on um, is, I think, telling us something. But as you said, Kim, of course, there's also that double standard. And I think um, also part of that point that you're making is that we can rest assured that tomorrow the police are going to be out there in full force. And it's possible that they could be doing what they did in July, which is to protect reclaim Australia against us, the community and we can only hope that the police aren't going to again be there using their full force against us, like pepper spraying us and charging us on their horses so uh, we we shall see and um, of course, this means that at tomorrow's rally, like any of these rallies, we are going to be disciplined, but we're going to be disciplined so that we're acting together and that we are going to be securing ourselves against the violence, not only of Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Patriots Front, but against the violence of the police and Something I'd like to add, I don't know if when we were cut off, if we were cut off before or after I was mentioning the unions. Did I get to uh, mention the unions previously? No. Okay. Something that is a very important development um, recently is that unions are actively coming on board, as they must, in mobilizing against the far-right and neo-Nazis. So my union, for example, the National Union of Workers, endorsed tomorrow's rally, and they have been um, calling out members or urging members to go to that rally, but also the Rail, Tram, and Buses Union, as well as the Australian Services Union, have each put out very strong statements and they are also urging their members to be there tomorrow. And as well, both the Ballarat and the Geelong Trades and Labor Councils have been promoting the information about tomorrow's counter rally. So this is the beginning of what really needs to be build, building, which is an all-out union movement um, getting out there and mobilising the entire union movement to be stopping the far right and the neo-Nazis before they can grow into a movement.
3: I think that's fantastic because it just puts out a big flag saying you are not welcome in Geelong, you are not welcome in Bendigo and that's exactly what we want to see. And I think they're running scared from Melbourne, CBD, um, and we want
5: to call them out for it. And of course there are rallies in other parts of the country as well, aren't there?
2: Uh, yes, there are, and they're in the major um, cities, and just as happened in April and July. And we will hope that, as we saw in July, that in those other counter-rallies, that those counter-rallies were big. And I think they will be again because, and this is something that Melbourne, um, can be quite proud of, um, that we've shown the rest of the country what you can do when you really, really mobilize um, very seriously and consistently, you can actually run them out of town. So let's hope that that's going to be happening all across the country tomorrow.
3: Yes, because it's interesting as well because all the UPF leaders are going to Perth, do you have any idea why they've done that?
2: Well, my think my well, what I suspect is that just recently the um Australian Libertary, Liberty Alliance, sorry, Liberty Alliance as they call themselves, which is a far-right um anti-Muslim party that launched itself in late October, um the fact that they are out there would be a reason, I think, that the UPF is going out to that Perth rally, and that it's it seems that they seem they think that Perth is a potential recruiting ground. I mean, that area has a pretty nasty history of fascist little grouplets organising. And so I suspect that that's what they're trying to do out there.
3: I suppose as well the leadership don't want to have to be able to claim the Melton rally if it's a failure.
2: Possibly.
5: (laughs) Thanks for talking to us, Debbie. Can you give the listeners uh, the uh, time and place again so that they can put it in their diary and get themselves organized for tomorrow?
2: Yes, yes. So tomorrow, the 22nd of November... From 11 o'clock, outside Melton City Council, which is 232 High Street, Um, that's where we are going to be counter-rallying against Reclaim Australia, run them out of Melton, which means running them out of Melbourne yet again.
5: Good on you. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. And that was Debbie Brennan, who's uh, part of the organising committee for the...
3: uh... Campaign Against uh, Racism and Fascism.
5: That's exactly right. And uh, so be there or be square.
7: Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again. And they're still using Islamophobia to divide
1: us. Next, they'll blame unionists, First Nations people...
7: Women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on.
1: They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech and we're going to stop them.
7: Rally on Sunday, November 22nd to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. 11am outside Melton City Council,
1: 232 High Street, Melton. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422-726-843.
7: The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter.
1: Work is united, never be defeated.
5: Workers United will overcome. And you're back with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we're going to move on to the section of the program, which uh, is being devoted as part of uh, the special lead-up to uh, the Climate Change Conference in uh, Paris, 29th of November. And I don't know if you've heard, but since the bombing, there has been uh, a, a a state decree that there will be no allowance for any demonstrations in the streets, only the conference will happen, apparently, according to the state. so Showing
3: that they can make hay out of any kind of horrific event.
5: Yeah, well, there you go, because it's all, you know, because we're all so scared. So um, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled over, see if the angels turn up, see if any of the people who are part of uh, raising awareness, because there has been a lot of... uh, Organisations and people involving themselves in a uh, demonstration of support for the for the the Earth uh, in the leading up to this conference, uh, it, the you know the day was November the 29th at uh, Paris. So we'll see what happens. But uh, in Australia, there's a whole lot of events leading up to that particular uh, conference. And uh, on November the 27th, Friday. Uh, there's going to be a People's Climate March. Uh, it's going to start at uh, 5.30, but before that is a uh, stop the forced closure of Aboriginal communities, 3.30pm. Living, people living on the land of the Kulin Nations will stand in solidarity west with WA and the rally in support on this day, whilst also speaking out on genocide and related issues. So... The First Nations people are, are supposed to lead the People's Climate March. So they're having their rally to begin the process, I presume, at 3.30 on November the 27th on Friday at the, on the steps of State Library corner of La and Swanston Street in Melbourne. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, then there's the...
3: Um, The People's Climate March, which um, is 5.30 Friday, uh, the 27th of November at the State Library. So that is a double protest, so you can attend them back to back.
5: Still fighting for what is ours.
3: Climate action.
6: Climate justice.
5: No man, no the time, no the hour.
6: In December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis starting Monday, November 16th till 28th and continuing into December from 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m., weekdays and on Saturdays.
7: And I'm do you know
6: the warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions, climate change will be irreversible.
3: So low, so low,
6: Stay tuned. As Tricia Breakfast Programs join the global conversation.
0: Come down to the Loman Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday, the 28th of November at 9 p.m. for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old-time union band Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians, plus special surprise guests will perform songs of workers' struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen, and countless others. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au.
6: In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing
5: by my bed. And as promised, we're uh, going to talk to Associate Professor Peter Christoph from the School of Geography, Un- University of Melbourne. We're going to be talking about the government's Clean Energy Regulators announcement on the results of the second reverse auction into uh, emission cuts for Australia. Uh, good morning.
6: Morning
5: there. Yeah, hello, how are you?
6: I'm extremely well, lovely
3: to hear Paul Robeson at this hour
6: of the morning.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right, what a beautiful voice. And good morning from me,
3: Kim, as well. Good morning.
5: Now, um, you've uh, just put out a, um, an article that's been looking at the uh, emissions uh, regulator's announcement about Australia's uh, reverse auction and its spending that in relation to uh, how we're going to cut our emissions because this is the key method that's being put forward to get our emissions rate down by 5% uh, by 2020. Can you explain to people what this reverse auction arrangement is?
6: Yeah, look, the, the approach that's been taken is, look, everyone would be painfully aware that there was an attempt a little while ago to try and put in place an emissions trading scheme and a carbon price. And the idea there was to establish sort of a floor price on a tonne of carbon and to require those major companies which were producing greenhouse gas emissions, to buy permits and you know, at, at that price or, or another auction price later on, and then to trade those permits and to, for the market then to set the price of carbon. This is sort of a, a, an inverse way of doing that, where instead of having a price on carbon that everyone has to use when they're buying permits for emissions, what companies do is bid to try and get a contract from the government uh, and the government then pays them to reduce their emissions and the companies that win the contract or win a contract uh, do so because their price for cutting emissions is lower than that of their competitors. So in this sort of bidding process, it, instead of you, you winning because you come up with the highest number or the greatest amount of money thrown into the into the pot, you sort of win because you've got Theoretically, the most efficient way of reducing emissions and therefore the, gov- the government can use its money to buy more emissions reductions from whatever, whatever proposal you're putting forward. So someone who's bidding, say, $15 per tonne uh, goes up against someone who's bidding $13 per tonne. The government will then pay the second bidder because it is, you know, it's a cheaper way of reducing emissions. Uh, in terms of bank for buck, so it's a reverse auction in that sense,
5: isn't it? It sounds, to me, it sounds like a crazy uh, capitalist method of trying to deal with something which is quite a, on a completely different scale.
6: Um, yes, no, and yes, and no. Look, it makes sense. The if you're going to use money, if you're going to use public money to reduce emissions, obviously the best thing to do is to try and get as many. So in that sense, it's perfectly okay. It's using a market-based mechanism, and markets can operate in in capitalist environments, they can operate in market socialist environments. It's a mechanism. Um, The craziness comes in when you don't have regulations that require the most um, voracious users of fossil fuels to participate. And if you don't have requirements there, Certain amounts of carbon to be reduced, absolutely reduced using this method by a particular point in time. Uh, The biggest problem with this this negative auction, this this reverse auction process at the moment in Australia, well, there are two big problems. The first is the amount of money that has been allocated to it, which is about $2.55 billion over four years, is uh, completely insufficient for us to reach the sort of targets that we're trying to, to get. And the 5% target that you mentioned, 5% of emissions reductions below 2,000 levels, is an extraordinarily weak and, and wackily inadequate target for at um, Australia's global responsibility for emissions reduction. So the first problem is that there's too little money allocated to the process, um, and secondly, uh, there is no participation required from the biggest emitters. In other words, those who are using fossil fuels to produce gen- for, to generate electricity, which is the biggest source of emissions in Australia.
3: I was just uh, reading your article. Uh, You're saying that most of the uh, refunds have have involved uh, forest protection, and as you say, is this not companies that are doing the most? Admitting why is it in particular rural um, companies that are being funded? Do you think?
6: Uh, because it's the cheapest source of emissions reduction in Australia. Basically, what's happened and, and uh, is is that some two hundred and fifty five contracts have been left, and they've almost almost entirely gone, not entirely, but almost entirely gone to companies that are involved in some form of what's called either biosequestration um, or uh, uh, forest, uh, forest reduction avoidance, so land clearing avoidance. Um, you don't have to spend a great deal of money not to chop down trees or not to clear vegetation. So it's a form of ongoing compensation, if you like to landholders who've decided to not clear their land um, and be paid for the carbon that they're retaining in growth as a result. That's an incredibly cheap thing to to do. The big problem is this, though, that many of the projects that have been funded were actually in place even before this scheme came into being. So there's no real... I mean, you know, it is true that those farmers could... or companies, land-holding companies... Could, if they weren't paid, go off and, and clear land, and, and you'd have the emissions occur. But these are not new projects; these have been in place. Um, they were put in place under labor and funded accordingly. Um, so there's not a great deal of effort required. Secondly, that, and this is, a, I, I think, a much bigger problem. It, there's there's no real There's no likelihood of new projects coming on, um, which are going to involve significant effort, because the amount of money that is being talked about is so small that big companies, the big emitters, aren't likely to be encouraged to sort of change their technologies. They're just not going into that place at all.
5: Now, uh, you talk about um, uh, structural change, the requirement for structural change, and it occurs to me that uh, on one side you've got uh, Turnbull from the... uh, uh, the Prime Minister talking about Australia requiring more agility and more innovative approaches to uh, things in general, which to me sounds a little bit like weasel words because the Future Fund itself is uh, has already been outed as a major investor in fossil fuel. Correct?
6: Yeah. Um, look the only way we're going to do the work that's required But I mean, as everyone I'm sure who's listening knows, Australia is the world's biggest uh, emitter of fossil of, of greenhouse gases per capita globally. It's uh, one of the greatest emitters of greenhouse gases compared to other countries. The figures keep on changing. We're probably about 16th or 17th amongst 195 nations. If we were to do what is required of us as a country Uh, And if we were to take on our our fair and appropriate share of emissions reductions to keep global warming down not below two degrees, which is, I think, highly unsafe, but as close to 1.5, which is the best we can manage at the moment, um, we would be reducing our emissions in the stationary energy sector, for example, by 100% within 10 years or less if we could. You know, that's the that's the, the rate of emissions reduction that we should be engaging in, something like, you know, in the vicinity of 50% uh, or more within uh, absolutely within two decades and perhaps much higher than that. Um, now, lots of different ways in which you can do that. Uh, agility and innovation, two words that the Turnbullers like to use, uh, are, are very good words if you can get that happening in the end. <laughs> yeah, they're nice technology. words. Well, and you can encourage that to occur and... and for example, you look at the best developed country emitters who've, who've reduced emissions, like Germany. They've done that by putting subsidies into the renewable sector, feed-in tariffs and so on, and they've gone a huge way down the path of reducing their emissions. Big industrial countries. Um, so innovation's great. The capacity to, to encourage innovation is, is something that governments can do quite effectively. It's just that we're not doing that in Australia. We're, you know, as, as everyone should know, um, the coalition under Abbott did its best to try and wreck the, re- the renewable energy target that we had, and Labour conspired and agreed to help reduce that target from uh, what was um, what looked like it was going to be about a third of our total emissions from stationary energy to what they were calling the real twenty percent. In other words, they cut the target, but the actual effective target uh, in volume terms by.
5: Oh goodness me disappeared again there's something going on with the uh the system here uh we've just been talking to professor associate professor peter Christophers. um we'll see if we can get him back but uh, otherwise uh, we'll come back and uh, proceed with uh, all the wonderful things that uh, appear on uh, solidarity breakfast we'll go to uh, just a replay of a song that um, i just find absolutely extraordinary The We're just going to go back to our discussion with uh, Associate Professor Peter Christoph uh, about uh, emissions trading or emissions schemes to try and reduce Australia's greenhouse uh, effects. So you are saying that, uh, uh, what can we do? What can we do? We're in a pilot situation.
6: <laughs> well, um, nice little intervention from Asia there. Uh, the, <laughs> look... The current scheme that we've got is not going to go anywhere near reducing our emissions to the target that we're aiming for. We'll probably hit the 5% target, um, but that's because of, of other things that have happened in the economy. So there are a range of other measures that we absolutely need. One is, I think we do need a price on carbon. We need a price on carbon that's about 30 to $40 almost immediately. And that'll encourage a whole range of different players in society to really start taking greenhouse, uh, you know, the, the problem of, of, of climate change seriously and will start changing their investment and in other practices. The other thing that we, I think, desperately need to do is to simply throw a, a whack of money at the problem of change, of dealing with the easiest part of the economy that we can change, and that is to move out of fossil fuels immediately in terms of... Um, or immediately within, within 10 years in the stationary, energy, the electricity sector, and build huge capacity for renewables. That That is the easiest thing for us to do. We can do that straight away. Um, Beyond Zero Emissions put forward a really powerful and effective program of action. It costs about $30 billion a year for 10 years. It sounds like a lot of money, but compared to climate change's costs, it's derisory. That's the sort of stuff that we need to be doing and, and government plays a very powerful role there in just investing and requiring through regulation the change of industry and also um, private consumer practice in that area. So I think, you know, in, in some senses it's not rocket science. We've got the technologies. Some are more efficient than others. But it's not a case of us trying to work out whether you know, the market is going to determine efficiency over 50 years. We just simply have to make the change and I think that involves government spending a lot of money Making some fairly tough regulatory decisions, and also and this is the third component which Labour got horribly wrong, which the coalition is uninterested in, making sure that there is a, a creative and constructive discussion in the community about what climate change is going to mean for us, if people really understood that the consequences of our policies are for three or four or five degrees warming and what that's going to mean, and you know we 've just had the hottest October ever on record. Victoria, six degrees Celsius above the previous record, which is an astonishing outcome. If people recognise what the implications of that are, they're going to be absolutely locked into and, and, and desperate for these changes to occur. So I think government's got a great responsibility to place, to play in this, in this space, and, and in that sense, I think it's certainly the case that the Coalition's not going there, um, Abbott has Extraordinary uh, Abbott.
5: <laughs> Turn- Turnbull is Abbott. I think, uh, yeah, I moment. was going to say there's a new poster out where they've got uh, two, the two sides of the face. One is Abbott and one is uh, Turnbull. And it's disturbing because you can't actually tell the difference.
6: <laughs> well, look, at the moment, Turnbull has, has said and done nothing that changes any of Australia's settings in climate change. I think he'll put some more money into um, the climate fund when he goes to Paris in, in a week or so. But In terms of domestic behaviour, we are still very much locked into the Abbott era and unless there's a significant change, I think you would have held accountable for that at the next election. So uh, there is an astonishing range of things that can be done to improve Australia's very poor performance and you'd have to hope that all of them are going to occur sometime soon.
5: Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Now you can get back to your coffee and croissant. Excellent. Great. Thank you. you. Thanks for (laughs)
6: that. Bye. See you.
5: And, yeah, that was uh, Associate Professor Peter Christoph, And it's nice to know that we can actually do something, but uh, the thing is that we're all scared. How come the uh, Wallers haven't got their act together? Well, I think part of it is that they're all
3: companies competing and big business basically got Malcolm Turnbull elected
5: and he's not willing to rock the boat. No. It's interesting having a banker for a prime minister <laughs> Interesting Yeah, that's right Interesting, like a climate, a colon head Remembering that there's the Pe- People's Climate March uh, Melbourne uh, It's on 5.30pm uh, Friday, the 27th of November At the State Library Steps And before it, at 330 Is the First Nations uh, Stop the Forced Closure of Aboriginal Communities Now, uh, this is all d- deeply linked It might seem like two separate things, but they're not. They're deeply linked. This uh, removal of uh, First Nations peoples from their uh, land is part of a whole ideological push that doesn't understand the need to care for country.
3: As well, you know, a lot of it's about literally putting uranium mines on Aboriginal land that has contributed (gasps) to Not
5: just mines. We can have a waste dump.
3: Oh, fabulous.
5: Yeah, a nuclear waste dump. Or as Joe Toscano says, uh, who's a broadcaster at 3CR, oh, it's going to be in your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing that usually stops people. Oh, yes, it's a good discussion to have. We'll have a a nuclear waste dump. Oh, well, it's in your backyard and let's see what they think then. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Yeah, anyway.
7: Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again, and they're still using Islamophobia to divide us.
1: Next, they'll blame unionists, First Nations people,
7: women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on.
1: They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech, and we're going to stop them.
7: Rally on Sunday, November 22nd, to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. 11 a.m. outside Melton City Council, 232
1: High Street, Melton. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422 726 843.
7: The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter.
1: Work is united, never be defeated.
0: Work is united,
5: well overcome.
0: Come down to the Loman Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday, the 28th of November at 9 pm for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old Time Union Band, Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians, plus special surprise guests will perform songs of workers' struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson. Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen and countless others. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au.
6: In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed...
4: A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Listener, when we will move on to satire, but first, satire is clearly inappropriate for the dominant commercial media news of the week which we can't just ignore by cracking a few unrelated bad jokes. There's no humour and innocence being slaughtered in the name of some maniac's god. God wants all but the relatively few adherents to the maniac's heresies dead. God made these people to be slaughtered. Only a couple of times, T and Mint Square was what I can recall, have we deviated from our usual style paris we can't miss it hour after hour page after page after page much less coverage to the same fanatic same slaughter in beirut and other cities and countries not white western capitalist the terror death and homelessness inflicted on innocent brazilians by bhp and what coverage there has been has centered on the economic damage to shareholders the terrorism, war crimes of deliberately bombing a Médecins Sans Frontières hospital, the continuing horrors, terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, the legacy of our white Christian crusades, invasion, slaughters, the coalition of the killing, Bush, Blair, Howard and their successor war criminals, the fanatical Islamic maniacs terrorising the world a result of those war crimes. War crimes beget war crimes beget war crimes. War begets war begets war. The fanatics described the Paris innocents as crusaders. One religion advanced into about the 15th century, the other into about the 11th. From Richard the Lionheart and Sullivan to George Bush, Barack Obama, Tony Blair, our own warmongers and the terrorist fanatics, IS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda et al., all slaughtering in the name of the same God. Analyses of Paris, page after page after page, have concentrated on how to prevent these fanatics becoming fanatical, brainwashed by evil, or how surveillance can prevent their brainwashed terror. No analysis of the role Western Christian civilization has played in treating their countries and religion as Western corporate property or culturally inferior, indeed creating their very boundaries under colonial division, slicing the Middle East cake, displacing Palestinians altogether to make way for a pro-Western terrorist ally – the very base of much of the problem, and condoning the continued oppression of the Palestinian people. The Western Christian invaders act like innocents, headline in one morning's Lord Rupert a Wapping Sin, reality is harsh when only one side puts value on life. Wonder what the Palestinians, the Iraqis, the Afghans, the Syrians, the wedding parties and hospital patients being bombed would think of that. The Paris murderers are butchers, maniacs, but they won't be stopped by more of the same. Invade, create terrorist fanatics and then invade again because they are terrorist fanatics who see our bombs and trained killers as the real terrorists. A side that puts value on life has a strange way of showing it. To state the obvious, there's no simple or quick solution now, but there will be no solution while white Christian civilization continues its modern version of the Crusades, burying its head in the oil-washed Middle East sands. Assay, maintaining the Paris link. The week that was. Spare a thought yet again this week for the big troublowazie, the national icon we all love and more particularly respect BHP, which, as we said last week, we always thought stood for bloody huge profits, but now realise has transmogrified into bloody huge polluter. Although our listener did point out the full title these days is bloody huge polluter bilious town. The latter summing up the former communities that lay in the wake of bloody huge polluters bloody huge polluting. Two awards here the kicking them when they're down award of the week and the, well, that clears that up award of the week. The first, how cruel of the Queensland, her most gracious Majesty's land government to choose this time as bloody huge is working overtime to make it make life easier for the people of Brazil for whom it went to make life better, having accidentally made it a touch worse to go after bloody huge for royalties claiming the company had been paying only a fraction of the royalties it ought to be paying thanks to flogging resources to its Singapore entity at bargain basement prices then selling them from there at skyscraper penthouse prices. Poor old bloody huge having to explain the government has got it all wrong if it claims bloody huge is tax or royalty dodging. It's just normal business practice and we're a very normal business who just loves normal business practice. Come on, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Government, give it a break. Can't you see it's got more important things on its bottom line plate than worrying about not paying a few royalties? Then, still putting the boots in, it looked like a scene from hell, this P1 True Blue Aussie capitalist review headline Monday. Paris, I assumed, but no, a survivor's account of the bloody huge polluter terrorism, the sulfurous smelling sludge heading down two rivers on its way to the Atlantic, destroying lives, villages and the terrestrial and aqua food chain. But for goodness sake, bloody huge assures us, assures the homeless and survivors, there is nothing dangerous in the sludge well, apart from the deaths and destruction and displacements. And yet the Brazil president got the boots kicking. It had cut off drinking water for for 250,000 people and saturated waterways downstream with dense orange sediment that could wreck the ecosystem for eons. Has she no feelings for poor old bloody Uges sensitivities? Bringing us to the, well, that clears that up award of the week, sensitivities... We've only got to look at bloody Youth's chairperson Jack Nastia to see a sensitive man. The words humanity, compassion, care immediately spring to mind. Don't know why these people love being photographed, because most of them tend to look like what they are. Remember how our former great and beloved big supremo nuclear hawk himself, those eyes, lifeless, cold as ice? Anyway, Jack Nastia was asked about that Brazilian Environment Department report, that there were structural problems with the tailings dams, and therefore the accident that happened was likely to happen, unless Bloody Huge and its partner in crime, sorry, partner in mining, Vile, did something about it. Nothing to do with it, he said. Nothing to do with it. There was no relationship between the report that the tailings dams were likely to burst and the tailings dams, surprise, surprise, bursting. Uh, okay, thanks, Jack. And then some journalist had the audacity, the insensitivity again, kick, 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 to raise bloody Uge's environmental record around the world. Papua New Guinea, for instance, where the environment... River's system had also been destroyed for the foreseeable. There was no tailing dam there, Jack saged. "Uh, Well, not after it burst, this nasty journo rejoined it. Well, after it burst, there was no tailings dam to burst to cause pollution, Jack put him in his place. So... A report that pollution would happen had nothing to do with pollution happening. And a tailings dam that burst had nothing to do with environmental destruction, uh, a destruction of people's ways of life, because it burst and caused destruction, because after it burst it wasn't there to cause destruction. Uh, oh, Jack, Jack, Jack Nastia, you're... Well, that clears that up award of the week is on its way. Perhaps tail in tailing should be spelled T-A-L-E when Jack's around. Well, Jack also told environmentalists concerned at the impact of a bloody huge coal mine in Borneo, orangutans, forests and those silly concerns, but if we don't, somebody else will. And, quote, "...the area of interest has had accelerated development pressures over the last 20 years," And it is not the pristine wilderness it was two decades ago. See, destroy, then use the destruction to justify destruction. Like melting the Arctic, then rubbing our hands at the new opportunities. And Jack also said, We can make a very positive social contribution and help raise the standard of mining in the area. Whatever that means. How many millions does he get paid for that rubbish? Uh, oh, and while we're kicking them, they hold exclusive rights to tug services at Port Hedland, where workers won improved wages and conditions after a long industrial campaign. Obviously too crippling, workers and evil unions too selfish because Bloody Ute's Profits has been forced to sack the company they worked for and has given the contract to a company that uses a non-union workforce. The contract was awarded, quote... On safety, capability and cost-effectiveness criteria, it said. Safety first, of course. Also, new safety first regulations starting Monday. All government, local, state and federal decisions must be forwarded for approval before they can be enacted upon to national headquarters in the White House wasn't it disgraceful that a government took a decision without consulting Washington? And we were only complaining about some minor issue which fades into, into, like, flogging off public property. Finally, taking his soaring success as education supremo to science and innovation, Christopher Payne in there told us big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull had told him to bring out his, quote, inner-revolutionary... As of this morning, surgeons have carved his body from there to, to well, well, it is breakfast time, but to no avail. Still no sign of good morning.
5: Good morning, Kevin. I'll have to say I don't know if you're as amusing as usual because I think the world is not very amusing at the moment, Kim.
3: No, no, it's not making for good comedy, is it?
5: <laughs> or maybe it's doing the job for us. Uh, it was funny, I didn't get to say that after we went to that uh, economic and uh, social outlooks conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the deathless quotes from that was uh, Josh Frydenberg's saying that uh, Turnbull was uh, has been called the uh, Bob Hawke of the Liberal Party which I thought was hysterical, and, and you can dissect that in so many different ways. It's
3: really interesting because I was reading an article in the Australian Financial Review when Abbott first got elected, and they were talking about, why can't you be more like Bob Hawke and Paul Keating? You know, all the reforms that they got through, and I think that's they found their man in Malcolm Turnbull.
5: Turnbull. Yeah, he's got a reasonable voice and a suit. But no, no, nothing's changed, uh, and uh, it's interesting after listening to the uh, discussion about uh, carbon emissions. This notion that you're going to solve the destruction of the planet by commoditising the uh, pollution pollution they're they completely inadequate to the task. That's basically the issue they're inadequate to the task, and we'll follow that particular issue up in uh, oncoming programs. Now, for people who have been dying to hear Noah, Doctor Noah Purcell back on the hustings, he's been very, very busy, but he gave us a bit of time this week. So, uh, we are going to. We did talk about uh, Paris. So here we go. Lovely to talk to you again, Noah. We haven't spoken for a while. It
8: has been a while, Annie. A lot has happened in the last few months.
5: Yes, uh, there were lots of things we could have talked about uh, earlier on, but uh, now uh, things have. Been superseded by the uh, attack in uh, Paris. What's your reading of uh, what's going on there?
8: Well, I mean, you know, ISIS have clearly shown their capability to strike at countries that are involved in the conflict against them. Uh, They've made it very clear in their uh, announcements that this is retaliation for uh, attacks in Syria and Iraq on, on themselves. Uh, I'm not condoning it at all. I'm just saying that's the context. They've, they've said that very clearly. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think this will be the end of it.
5: Now, there are sort of certain parallels, isn't there, with uh, the way the IRA fought the uh, war against the English in uh, Ireland, isn't there?
8: Oh, I mean, terrorism has certain characteristics. Uh, you know, it's random meant to spread fear. Uh, civilians are often the targets. Um, it's, always, it's usually in retaliation for an act by the government. Um, you know, they're, they're, and it's, it's meant to be both a, um, an attempt to try and change the behaviour of a particular government through, uh, through the sort of uh, um, response of, of public opinion, um, and it's also meant as a way of saying to the supporters, we have some strength. And, you know, in the case of the IRA, uh, you know, partly that was, it was about recruitment and, and solidifying people's uh, commitment to the cause. I think in ISIS's case in uh, France, this was a, both a, a statement about their capability um, to their supporters back in Syria, but it was also an attempt to get... Uh, French, marginalised French Muslims to think about the potential of uh, joining their cause. Because Mm. we know from events not that long ago, 2005 um, and others, that there is a small but significant proportion of French uh, immigrants or or, um, immigrants to France, either first second generation, uh, who... Uh, from Muslim countries who feel disenfranchised, marginalised, discriminated against, and there's a, a lot of disillusion and, um, and uh, potential anger in those communities. And so I think ISIS has strategically chosen Paris because they, might, they think they might be able to tap into that.
5: Yeah, I guess one of the things I was uh, when I said uh, that there were similarities with the IRA and the English was obviously yeah. the things that you were mentioning, but that idea that it is a war and they're bringing it home to the people who believe that they're safe, waging yeah. war in other people's countries.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think that is, a, and that's part of the part of what they were saying, uh, part of the announcements they made or the when they claimed responsibility. Was that you know, countries that attack Syria and Iraq aren't safe, and uh, that's been part of their message. Um, you know, I, I'm not condoning no. all this. I think they're a, they're a, um, a, a really a, a deformity of contemporary global uh, the contemporary global system. Uh, they've come out of the politics of imperialism and of, uh, of authoritarianism in the Middle East. Um, they're not something inherent to Islamic culture by any means, they're a modern phenomena that we can sort of understand through the way that uh, sort of neoliberalism, imperialism um, r- religious uh, politics and all those things have converged in recent decades um, but you know the, the reality is that as long as the West continues to intervene in Arab politics or in countries uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere, they may face blowback. I mean, that, you know, that was clear from 9/11, um, and it's clear now. Now, what the choices are for the West, I think, are uh, 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 pretty stark. One is: do we continue to 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 uh, um, um, uh, sort of spend huge amounts of resources fighting, fighting these organisations, or do we try to invest? and change the way that the global political economy operates in ways that might empower and give people opportunity so that they don't turn to extremism. Now, that's a huge call for the global system. But what we've seen over the last 15 years, I I have no doubt in saying this, since the war in Afghanistan and um, in, in Iraq and elsewhere, is that there is no military solution to this problem
5: no it 's quite interesting because uh, you 've got the actual events that happened, and of course, if you were in Paris and Paris is a huge place so obviously yeah. uh, the uh, where it 's happened is a particular section, and that will be quite uh, scarifying for the people who are close by mm, and absolutely. then yeah. and then as the as you move away from that epicenter to the large City. Then you go. There's this ripple effect that's going on right across the Western Indeed. world.
8: Indeed. I mean, I, you know, today I've been reading about um, multiculturalism. I mean, I just I'm giving a paper soon, and I've been reading some of the material. Um, and you know, what strikes me is, uh, and you know, I'm not trying to say that uh, there's any doubt about what happened in Paris, or that um, there's any way of condoning it. But understanding the way that racial politics continues to play out both, you know, in countries like France and other European countries and Australia and also globally it has to be a, a part a, 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 a serious component or a serious factor in trying to explain these events. I mean, there's a, certainly a racial element to this. I mean, not just in the sort of politics that drive it, but also in the way we respond to it. I mean, you know, there's been a little bit of press, in, not so much here in Australia, but certainly in some of the international more thinking press um, and media about the fact that there was a huge disparity in the response uh, to the, uh, and both political and media to the attacks in Paris compared to the attacks in Beirut. Uh, that ISIS were responsible for both. Certainly the attacks in Paris were on a larger scale, 165 people I think now uh, have died as a result. In Beirut, it was uh, in the high 40s, it might, it might rise a little bit more. But nonetheless, they're two attacks by the same organisation on civilians. And yet the response has been incredibly disproportionate, where we've, you know, sort of wrung our hands in, uh, in, in despair and, and raised the French flag in solidarity for the French people and almost completely ignored the plight of innocent Lebanese civilians who were slaughtered by the same organisation. And until I think we overcome this huge disparity in the way that we see the, the value of life in different parts of the world, I don't think we're going to resolve any of these questions.
5: There's a couple of uh, issues there. Uh, I'll have to say, although there hasn't been, there won't be thorough details, but uh, it uh, appears to me that uh, the large amount of people who were killed might have something to do with the storming of the theatre, uh, in the same way as there was the storming in St. Petersburg with the Chechen mm-hmm. rebels. Yeah. But I'm jumping to a conclusion there. Uh, but uh, that is something that would have to be thought about. Uh, the other side of it is that um, the there's a sort of unsettling monotony to the the narrative that's been created. And mm. I, I find that a bit of a, a horrible word to use, but I was just talking to a person who makes films and I was saying to him, you know, someone could have written this as a script. Mm. And the notion that there was a passport, a Syrian passport beside a dead body, that beggars belief.
8: Mm.
5: What's your view? Uh,
8: well, I, I mean, you know... The the, the likelihood that some someone involved in this has a Syrian background well, that's is probably not, pretty high.
5: Yeah, it probably is high. Yeah. It's yeah. Just that whether
8: they're a refugee or not, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a completely different question. Um,
5: it's just that they're yeah. memes, aren't they? There's these memes that are being yeah, yeah, sent absolutely. out.
8: Yeah, and what's happening is that people are looking for ways to uh, respond. I mean, you know most most societies most western societies have a sense of fear of the other and the others have changed in time i mean here in australia we've had a whole range of others we had the black peril we had the yellow peril we've now got the islamic islamic peril and these are built up as particular sort of um, um dangers to white society and you know in the u.s they've had they've had the black peril the red peril i mean these are Part of the historical tropes and the historical um, sort of uh, um, um, representations of the other as a villain, as a potential danger. And now we have, a, a, we live in a time where there's a huge focus on this particular problem. And I mean, in Australia, the reality is that this is now a co- country that is largely representative of global of global society. I mean, you know, the the white dominance of this country as a long-term project is definitely in danger and people, white people in positions of power, see this as a threat to their continued control over the country and so they'll use whatever means they have possible, whatever tactics to try to produce a particular response that allows them to maintain control and I think in this case the use of you know, the Islamic peril is part of that project or part of that. I mean, I don't think it's a project, it's a, it's a particular historical pattern. Well, Australia it's, it's right back.
5: Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, the thing about it is that uh, if you just look into any particular things in the way the country is operating, you can point to facts that are contrary to the reasons that are given. So, the notion that there's danger that we need to up our ante in relation to uh, yes. militarizing the police, that sort of thing when and yeah, yeah and, yeah, yeah, and, and that 's a particular one the one about the sovereign sovereign states you know uh, it 's fascinating because you see this government has actually outsourced our military uh, uh, establishment in a sense like uh, they're getting yeah. other countries to build our weaponry they're getting other people to even build, uh, to make their uniforms
8: I mean the national economy barely exists anymore I mean it's a, it is, it really for the elite there's really very little concern about the national economy what <sighs> they're concerned about is capital and in particular the, 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 the capital that they have and how it can continue to grow I mean, you know, whether Australia produces belts anymore or shooters really is no, is no interest to Australia's leadership. What's important is, is their capital growth. Is, can their capital continue to grow? If that means offshoring uh, those um, sectors, you know, so those um, industrial sectors or the, those sectors of the economy, then that's not, a, that's not a question, that's not a problem for them whatsoever. We've seen that with the car industry in the last but, few years.
5: But, but it's so contrary to the messages that are putting out. You know, they're saying we're, we need to protect our borders. But actually, yes, but it's impossible under this situation.
8: Well, I mean, you know, this is, these are the contradictions of globalisation. On the one hand, you know, there's, a, there's this new aggressive nationalism um, and this new project of national identity. You know, Howard was the master of that. Uh, he tapped into Australia's fears around globalisation. Um, and he tapped into them around identity. But at the same time, he continued to free and liberalise Australia's economy and neoliberalise Australia's economy so that capital was free to move. I mean, in the global economy, capital and goods can move across borders without any constraints whatsoever, in most cases, um, can move across borders without any restraints. The third factor for any, any business, that is labour, is the most highly restricted in any time in history. And that's just, you know, this is one of the deep contradictions of, of globalisation, which, you know, most people are unaware of or, or have been uh, completely uh, made ignorant of. And so it's that contradiction that governments have to play out through national security and national borders because they've let the economic space open up dramatically, not just open up, but be free to global capital um you know if people really thought about what was more important they would probably start to want to see some constraints around what capital can do and we've seen the attempt by labor party and some and the greens and a few other groups here labor's been a little bit soft on this issue a bit scared to really go into the 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 matter of uh tax of uh of um, multi-corporate multi tax uh, because they are also party of neoliberalism as well. And
5: but really it's also, I mean, remember Noah, what has just recently come out about how the uh, Whitlam coup, the coup in 75. Yes. I mean, it was yeah. it was an orchestrated coup from outside.
8: Yeah, I mean, you know, Whitlam was a threat because like Pinochet, oh, sorry, like Allende in Chile was overthrown by Pinochet, like... Um, um, I'm trying to think of his name the Iranian leader that was overthrown in 53 uh, and, and many others who tried to protect the national uh, economy and create some sort of national um, infrastructure uh, that could protect people, he was a threat to the global system, He's a threat to global capital and you know, he, he was overthrown at a time when the neoliberal project was just emerging just before, but it was really he was, like Allende, in many ways, I think, victims of this attempt to really solidify and consolidate the protection and the, of the national economy. Now, I mean, you know, people who know Whitlam and Australian politics better may disagree with that altogether. They will, but, yeah. Because you know, yeah, I, I, that's not my area. But, I mean, the little bits I've read suggest that, uh, you know, potentially he was a victim of... His
5: economic policy... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was else. no rad. He was no rad, Whitlam. He was no. just uh, prepared to uh, grow Australia e- uh, out of its deformed shape that had been, yeah. it'd been been kept in by particular power groupings. But uh, let's go back to Paris, in that it, it, Paris was sp- is supposed to be the uh, site of a major climate conference that starting on November the 29th. And, yeah. uh, of course, lots of people were gathering up to go there to do demonstrations. And now they're talking about how they're, sh- they're going to s- stop all demonstrations on the streets. And that uh, the other thing is uh, the, uh experts are saying, experts in inverted commas, conference may also do more to discuss links between climate change and national security, a theme often stressed by the US Secretary of State, John Kerry, uh, in the same way as we are talking about... Uh, the reasons for why uh, Syria was in in uh, the uh, destabilised situation was a lot yeah. to do with climate.
8: Well, I mean, if they were serious about climate change and security, they would start to redirect huge amounts of money that go into military uh, expenditure, into things like carbon capture, like uh, re- renewable energy, um, and really, really uh, put a... Uh, make a major stand against uh, global warming, but of course this is just lip service to the idea that uh, climate change and national security are linked. What they're saying, in effect, is that how do we continue to promote uh, the the sort of damage of the environment um, securely? And that is how do we protect our major fossil fuel industries and those people who benefit from them? I mean, I, I you know this is really for me very frustrating that people can't see security in the, sen- in the in the broader sense of the term. That is the sense uh, in the term meaning, uh, sorry, the meaning of security around food, um, access to clean water, access to um, shelter, I mean that when we talk about security as a long, historically, uh, we are really talking about the basic fundamental needs of humans and those are never addressed in these sort of discussions when security is discussed it's really discussed in terms of, of offensive um, uh, military um, 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 capabilities. That's not defence. We don't have the defence for us in Australia. We have an army that is uh, um, closely linked to US offensive and geostrategic interests, and the US army is not defensive at all. It wasn't able to defend Australia, uh, the US against the one... Attack, but it's the one attack on national soil that it's ever faced, and that was the 9/11 attacks. What the U.S. military does is it invades and um, and occupies other countries around the world, and that's what it's traditionally done right back to its inception uh, before the um, uh, westward expansion. And that security is more, uh, as much about people's basic needs, if not more, than it is about. Um, Offensive, uh, strategic capabilities and military, um, um, and military capabilities.
5: It's really interesting because uh, the uh, just looking at the uh, footage of the the delegates at these conferences shows you how skewed the uh, notion is about uh, decision making and decision makers. They're almost all males of a particular age of, uh, they're just, it's it, in suits. And, uh, yeah,
8: it's it, quite quite a monolithic group, isn't it? Yeah, and I, um, I know
5: it seems absurd to just point out the obvious, but it's actually getting oppressive.
8: <laughs> yes, and it has been for a long time. I mean, gender scholars and race scholars talk a great deal about the, um, you know, the sort of lack of representation Um in 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 um, political and, and and economic circles, I mean, we know, you know, there's been a lot of discussion you know, about Australia's glass ceiling, um, which, you know, I don't think we should ignore at all.
5: I mean, it doesn't mean that uh, people can't just be subsumed into the uh, hegemony of the group because they are of a different sex or they're of a different group. No, no,
8: absolutely not. No, no, no you know our. You know there are there's no doubt that barack obama is uh you know and i i'm not trying to say that it, i think he's done a lot of things that we would not have happened if he hadn't been elected he's changed the discourse a little bit but of course he is a product of his environment that environment is a very white elitist um um one you know one that you know is based around harvard and around the political system in the u.s which is uh, highly Masculine, um, and you know, drawn from a very narrow uh, group of the
5: population. Uh, uh, many of those movies that are being made at the moment, many of the t- the jetrius that's coming from the uh, leading empire at the moment, it's all about games. It's always it's all about winning games, and uh, that competitive uh, ideological process seems to be quite a uh, common uh educational process for men. Uh, uh Women obviously involve themselves but it's something that uh, young yeah. boys and men are actively trained in. It doesn't mean that that's yeah. their natural order, it just means that's what they're proposing, that that should be male and therefore they get to take up most of the decision making processes and of course we then see, as you were saying, this notion of uh, uh security is being yeah. distorted.
8: Yes, and it has been for a long time. And the, the way we use language and the way we use uh, sort of dominant ideas, uh, it's something that we really have to challenge.
5: Yeah, if we want change, that's what we have to do. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you, Noah.
8: Uh, as always, Annie, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Five, four,
6: three, two...
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio
5: And we're coming to the end of Solidarity Breakfast It's been a nice morning, hasn't it Kim?
3: It has been a lovely relaxed morning
5: Yeah, even though uh, the world isn't being very funny at the moment uh, Thank you for the calls, uh, for people who've uh, rung in And uh, coming up next, oh, I suppose we should give a rundown of who we actually spoke to
3: Yes, we started off with uh, Debbie Brenner, who is from the campaign against racism and fascism because there is a very important demonstration happening tomorrow in Melton um, against the fascists who will be mobilising there. Um, so if everyone could get down there at 11am, that would be fantastic.
5: And it's at outside the uh, council chambers, isn't it? And yes, that's right. I don't, didn't get the number though. I did. It's uh, 232 High Street in Melton. So there you go. And uh, after that, we had a chat with uh, Associate Professor Peter Christoph about... He's the uh, Associate Professor of School of Geography, uh, University of Melbourne. And we were talking about the uh, highly inadequate uh, scheme that's being used by the uh, federal government uh, to mitigate our uh, 2020 target of... uh, percent below 2,000 levels of uh, carbon emissions Direct inaction. Direct inaction. and coming up ne- Oh and then of course we talked to, we had Kevin and uh, we talked to Noah about uh, what's going on in the world but coming up next and we better get out of here is uh, Asia Pacific Currents We'll go out with Corporate Cannibal by Grace Jones
4: oh, Come on put your hands together for the and, and the Jones clan Amen. And I I don't want to say much more, but
8: Grace Jones is in the house.
5: Pleased to meet you. Pleased to have you on my plane.
0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.